Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I'm Rivka Rivera. Rivka, how's it going? How's your week going? It's good. I got back from Puerto Rico. I jumped right into the New York lifestyle and I saw an amazing play last night called The Jungle. So if it's, I think it's going to Washington next. It was- uh, Where was it? developed in the UK there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people on the team that I'm not going to remember the names of but I know Stephen Daldry is one of the directors and it's incredible my brain's probably not capable of (laughs) explaining exactly what was what there was so much it's about an a refugee camp that uh, a real refugee camp that was developed in Calais in France and I mean, it was just such an Im- incredible, immersive experience. It just rattled my soul and reminded me why theater is my favorite ritual of them all and made me just grateful to be alive and also equally horrified to be <laughs> part of the human race. Wow, that sounds really incredible. I have not been as good at seeing theater as you are. I need to get back into it, but it's always so nice to hear when someone has such a wonderful and transformative theater experience because it is one of the few things that can do that as a as a live performance medium. I have not been nearly as productive as you, I don't think. I haven't been doing much uh, other than drinking all of the leftover alcohol from my birthday party. And, you know, it's been four or five days of that. And now I'm sad. Someone had to do it. Someone had to do it. You couldn't throw it away. Couldn't throw it away. And they were batched cocktails. So there's like, you know, fruit juice. So it will go bad at a certain point. But yeah, you know, it's that thing that happens as we get older. The the more consistently you drink, the the worse you feel over time. Not even not even physically. Like I physically I feel fine, but just emotionally I feel sad. Mm-hmm. So so we're gonna we're gonna pump the brakes on it, I think. Introduce some water. <laughs> and no shortage of water. I am a, a well hydrated person. And while this is incredibly fascinating, I'm sure (laughs) this isn't what we plan on talking about. But before we get into our conversation today, we did really quickly want to talk about this speech that was made by the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. Um, Some of you may have seen this. It kind of had a little bit of a viral moment online. Um, Just a little bit of background. A few weeks ago at the WGA Awards, screenwriter Charlie Kaufman was awarded the Laurel Award for Screenwriting Achievement. Kaufman wrote the screenplays for the films Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Synecdoche, New York, and most recently, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So he's had like a mid-range career. Yeah. <laughs> Not a, a big deal. Yeah. They, they they give that award to just pretty much to just like up-and-comers. Yeah, yeah. You know, Charlie Kaufman, always known for being like a weird, like he, his movies are very strange. They're very esoteric, surreal, abstract. He's got a very... He's clearly got a wild mind. But during his speech, he basically used his speech to speak about the conflict between artistry and commercialism. And he basically uh, bashed the Hollywood executive class and urged his fellow writers to not subjugate themselves to that executive class. So I'm just going to play a little bit of what Charlie Kaufman said. I have dropped the ball. Wasted years seeking the approval of people with money. 
Don't get trapped in their world of box office numbers. You don't work for them. You don't work for the world of box office numbers. You work for the world. Don't worry about how to pitch. Don't pitch. Be nervous. Be vulnerable. Just make your story honest and tell it. They've tricked us into thinking we can't do it without them. But the truth is they cannot do anything of value without us. Oof, I'm getting emotional listening to that because it's so powerful. It's so important. It's so brave. It's so necessary. It feels the emotional tenant of that speech to me feels almost like someone on their deathbed, even though, of course, Charlie Kaufman is not on their his deathbed and has lived quite an artistic life. But it had the emotional capacity of someone on their deathbed saying, you know what I regret the most is living my life. And I worked too much. (laughs) I didn't care about relationships or what made me happy. The things you prioritized. Yeah. And that this is just and and the reminder of how how capitalism can rob you of that life and your emotional creative livelihood and how the anecdote and how what what bravery in this case looks like is that idea of be nervous, be imperfect, how hard that is. I, I think I really relate to that. We spoke about this on the podcast last week, but being in any kind of uh, system like a conservatory or a school or any place, you know, the word, I don't think in this clip we heard it, but he also says it another part. We are trained to do the bidding of people who are motivated not by curiosity, but by protecting their jobs. Mm. And that word training, I've had a lot, I've even, even before this speech, I've just been thinking a lot about that word training in many contexts and just how devastating that terminology can be because you can't train an artist to be an artist. That's ridiculous. It's so ephemeral. It's so spiritual. It's so something that connects us to something that is antithetical to the idea of training. We can learn different forms of craft, but you can't train. Is there like a word that you would sub in for training in terms of like how an artist can grow in a given environment? I think Charlie offers some good ones by by talking about curiosity, mm-hmm. you know, and this idea that we're what motivates us. And then he goes on to say we lose um, we lose sight of essentially what our work is, that our work is to reflect the world and say what is true in the face of so much lying. And then, of course, I'm going to give the whole speech now, goes on to quote Adrian Rich, a Pulitzer Prize winning American poet. I do know that art means nothing if it simply decorates the dinner table of the power which holds it hostage. Oof. That's real. Yeah. So it, you know, just kind of tore my insights apart. Additionally, I mean, clearly they're getting ready. I think March 20th, the WGA is going to be revisiting negotiations. And a lot of people have read into this, rightfully so, that potentially this is a rallying call for solidarity and and a potential strike. I mean, we clearly... Oh, I hadn't thought about it in that context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, March 20th. So next Monday... Because how can you listen to that as a writer <laughs> and not know who has the power and be reminded at like who tells the stories here? 
See, I love talking about this stuff with you because you always, not always, but you usually have such a, you feel it inside of your soul and your heart. And I love that because for me, I heard the speech and I, and I felt a lot of that. But my big takeaway was, oh, I love how he is going after the executive class. Mm-hmm. I loved this so much because, you know, like you said, we spoke about commodification a few weeks ago about this exact point about how commodification can taint art and the artistic process. And I love how in this speech, he is pointing to the class of people in Hollywood, the executive class. And if you don't know Hollywood that well, this is the people who work at the studios or at production companies all around town who work in development, production, finance, marketing. These are the people who make the decisions of what gets made, of what projects get financed. And they are a they're a small 1% class. I mean, they're not a large class. of. It's not a huge class. And they are well-paid. This is a well-paid class in terms, in the, in the grand hierarchy of Hollywood, you know? And, you know, film and TV are expensive to make. And these are the people who have pretty much all of the discretionary power and influence as to what stories get told. And, you know, unless you become like a famous actor, writer, director, what have you, like... You're usually not getting paid as much as these people. They hold a lot of the power. and But Kaufman's line is so correct here that they create nothing of value without artists. Because when you really look at it, a, a, a movie or TV show getting made is sort of a grand form of exploitation. It's exploitation in one of the most glamorous industries that you can imagine, you know? Even though... Sure, famous actors, writers, directors might be getting paid very well. If you're not a name, a name brand, you're probably not making... People in Hollywood get paid well, but you're not making a ton of money and definitely not as much as the executive class does. And all of the below-the-line people, all the crafts people, all of the production people, all the the, the, the the grips, the gaffers, the electricians, the PAs, like they're not making anywhere near that much money. So this is... You have a large pool of people from different sectors that come together to make something. All of their labor is getting exploited because ultimately is either the studio or production company that is footing the capital and owns the product, which is the film or the television show or whatever. So even though it is a very glamorous and at times high paid industry, it is still a form of exploitation because it is the work of artists and craftspeople that go into making these things, but it is still just ends up being a few suits at the top and the shareholders who end up actually owning the art that they've all created together. Great point. I also, I yeah, I loved all of that. And I think what I was thinking about as you were saying that was that there's many forms of exploitation and it's not just financial. So you can be, and I think this is what Kaufman's getting at as well. It's like you can be also making maybe a shit ton of money as an artist or an actor and still be exploited. Yeah. And and Mark speaks to this as well in um alienation, commodification. You're 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 being exploited of like your spiritual life, your creative life because you are also still giving something away which might be your artistic agency. So even if you're making all this money, there's like and I think that's that's the power of this speech as well. Like don't let them take that, you know that is what you have on your deathbed. <laughs> it's like your yeah. creative rights and can't really put a price tag on that. Although you can. Um, Last thing I want to add really quick. 
fast anecdote. Um, just speaking to this uh, idea of the the executive class and the artist class, and who actually knows what's going on, who actually you know understands the art, and who's just in it for the business. Um, when I was still writing with my writing partner in LA, we were pitching a TV show, and we went to a network, a pretty big cable network. You would know what it is. And we were waiting in the lobby. And this was maybe like seven, eight years ago. And a gaggle of executives kind of shuffle out of the conference area. And they're kind of like shuffling to their next meeting. And they're all chat chit-chattering. And one of them says something like, oh, you know, we, we've got Michael Stuhlbarg for our next project. Michael Stuhlbarg, great actor, if you know him. And one of them was like, oh, he was on Boardwalk Empire, right? They're like, yes, yes, yes. He was Al Capone. He was so good as Al Capone. And my writing partner and I, who were big fans of Boardwalk Empire at the time, were sitting there and we're like, he didn't fucking play Al Capone in that show. He played a totally different character. But we watched and listened to all of these execs be like, oh my God, his Capone was, I couldn't believe his Capone. His Capone, it was like transformative. <laughs> and just watch these people who we knew were the people who had the power in this office just absolutely bullshitting and completely none of them knew what they were talking about. And then they just like walked on to the next thing that they were doing. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, I don't ever really need to trust these people's opinions ever again. So yeah, that was like a real life uh, exemplary moment of this and just wanted to share that. All right, I think that's enough chit chat. Let's get on to our conversation. But before we do... Just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes and you'll be directly supporting this show you can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Brazil with Melanie Vesey. All right, joining us right now on Movies versus Capitalism is Melanie Vesey. Melanie is a comedian, actress, a writer-director whose comedy special Wild Animal is available to watch on Reverie TV and to listen to on all major streaming platforms. Uh, as a comedian, she has opened for Mark Marin, tweeted for Tignataro, and won the round four of the U.S. Comedy Contest, and much, much more. Uh, and her short films have been official selections at Outfest, FAIF, IFFCA, and the PCC Film Festivals. Melanie, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Thank you for being here. Oh my god, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so excited to talk about this movie. So, yay, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled. So a little bit, so a little context for Rivka and for the listeners. Melanie and I actually met um, under the boot of capitalism uh, in one of the most classically exploited uh, roles in our uh, economic system. We were waiting tables in Los Angeles. Hey. Um, I remember I, I met you, I was probably in my early 20s, and I remember meeting you, Melanie, and being like, this might be the coolest person I've ever met in my entire life. Oh. 
right back at you, kid. I think you were fantastic. I I adored you. I loved working with you. I'm and I've been. It's been an honor to watch you over the years, and I'm so glad to reconnect with you. And that that job was. Uh, the worst job. Uh, I would have to say top 10 worst jobs I've ever had. And it literally kicked my ass. So yeah. (laughs) Where in town were you guys waiting tables? Los Feliz. Oh, Los Feliz. Probably shouldn't say the name of the restaurant, but yeah, Los Feliz. I don't even know if it's still there, actually. I think, um, I know they had two locations and I know one closed. And I was very happy to see that, actually. So we we can say that there's no place like it. That's a bit of a hint. So what movie did you pick for us, Melanie? I picked the movie Brazil. Yeah. And I was, well, first I chose It's a Wonderful Life because it was right before the holidays. Um, It's a Wonderful Life is, I would probably have to say like one of my all time favorite films. I watch it almost every year. It means so much to me. And, uh, but you guys were like, it's Christmas. We, we and it's such a capitalism like one oh one movie, big time. And you were like, "We're." And it's funny because I had started writing a joke about billionaire CEOs, and I was like, "Do they watch movies like It's a Wonderful Life? And do they root for Potter? <laughs> Are they root like I was like? How do they?" How do they reckon with their soul when they watch movies where clearly the bad guy is a rich guy who cut too many corners and pissed all over the little man? Like, do they watch it and identify with that guy? Like, how do they? So anyway, that was like the joke that I started writing. So I was like, this is perfect timing for this. And then you were like, no, no, we're saving it for Christmas next year. And I was like, very smart because it is a fantastic movie. So my second choice was Brazil which is a movie that I have always loved and referenced so many times over the years. Um, And I had actually, I had actually shared with you guys that I had actually just made my millennial wife and Gen Z son watch it recently, just in the past couple of weeks, because I was like, this movie is so important to watch. And of course, Terry Gilliam, what an incredible director. I mean, the movie is so stunning. And, and that, to me, like to have the subject matter be so powerful and to be matched with such beautiful filmmaking to me is like mwah, chef's kiss. So, yeah, I'm so happy you chose this. So for for people listening, a little context, Brazil was released in 1985. It is directed by Terry Gilliam. It was co-written by Gilliam Tom Stoppard, which was exciting for the theater nerds and Charles McEwen. And it stars Jonathan Price, Kim Greist, uh, Robert De Niro, Bob Hoskins, and many more. It's a huge cast. It's a huge film uh, over two hours. The cinematography is by Roger Pratt. And it was nominated for two Oscars in 1986, Best Original Screenplay and Best Art Direction and Set Direction, which was done by Norman Garwood, which was... Totally deserved. Yeah. Totally deserves. Makes a lot of sense. Its budget was $15 million. And it grossed just over nine million. So surprising that this money, this movie lost money at the box office. But I feel like it stood the test of time in the same way that like a Blade Runner was also like considered a flop. However, we're still talking about it today. So in my mind, that's great. And it had critical success. But yes, when it came out, I mean, Gilliam's talked about how people walked out of the theater but over decades, it's become a cult classic and it deserves to be. And there's so much um, 
in this plot, but essentially it's about this dystopian society and a bureaucrat who becomes an enemy of the state and he pursues this woman in his dreams. And there's just an amazing stuff that happens in this movie, which we'll dig deep into. You want to give us some historical context, Frank? Yeah. So this movie came out, uh, like Rivka said, in 1985. So what's going on right now? Ronald Reagan is the fucking president. We're like, we are halfway through the Reagan era. Um, simultaneously, though, we've got stuff like the Rainbow Coalition, uh, which is a political organization held by Jesse Jackson, had its first national convention. Uh, we Are the World came out. The charity single uh, recorded uh, by USA for Africa was released. The original Nintendo Entertainment System was released in Japan. And we don't usually do this, but we're going to cross the pond in the UK because this is a UK produced and essentially based film. Margaret Thatcher is halfway through her tenure as prime minister, the Iron Lady. And most notably, the UK miners strike had just ended in failure after being ruled illegal by the courts and from fierce opposition by Thatcher and her conservative party. So a huge, huge blow to labor in the UK at this time. We're like peak industrialization. Um, and that all really shines through, I think, in in this movie, especially in its production design. So, so Melanie... You just showed this movie to your to your wife and your son. This obviously is a very important movie for you. So why did you choose this movie for us to watch? And then I also want to hear about your your family's response to seeing it. Um, I think I've just probably seen this movie so many times over the years. And I am it means, like I said, like the, to have this like such a beautiful uh, repre visual representation. The performances are outstanding. It's just, it's just what I call responsible movie making, where mm. the story and the visuals is, is such a beautiful collaboration, and the movie is so big and expansive. And I also just feel like with what we've experienced in the past, you know, two or three years, with how we've dealt with a government, with how we've dealt with our own personal class system, the haves and the have nots, the divide of that. I feel like this movie represents that so much. Um, and I just felt like my son is kind of old enough now to understand and to grasp um, these, you know, the idea of like bureaucracy, paperwork of like going to get like when I took him to the DMV to get stamped and stuff. And it was funny because we had just watched it like the week before. And I'm like, it's like Brazil. And he's like asking for the paperwork. And did you get it stamped and go over here and get in this line and da 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 da, da and all of the stuff around it. And I just thought that it would be the perfect movie to deliver the, this information and to be able to have some wonderful conversations about it, which is my favorite thing. So in our family, whenever we watch a movie, at the end of the movie, we go, what was your favorite part and what was your least favorite part? And that helps us to break down whether it's the filmmaking aspects of it or the storyline aspects of it and to just dissect it. I feel like movies have probably been one of the most important vehicles in my life for information and so i'm that mom that's just totally like we're gonna it's movie night we're gonna watch this movie and and cover it you know what i mean and what did they think what was the takeaway i mean they were both like wow like uh, unbelievable right and it was funny because last night i i re-watched it because i i was just wanted to watch it through the lens of this conversation because usually i'm just swept away by how beautiful it is robert de niro's performance is incredible 
his name's John Price, right? Jonathan Price or whatever. Jonathan Price, yeah. I mean, give me a fucking break. And then the woman who plays his mom, who was also on um, what's that TV show with Tony Danza? Who's the boss? Yes, who's the boss? She was the mom, his mom, or or the white or the lady's mom on Who's the Boss? Oh wow, her performance, which was so fucking fantastic. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna watch it and watch it through this lens of like capitalism. And it was funny because. I brought my wife in and I was like, let's talk about it. And so we had this total heated conversation last night about it. Like just, and we're a family that talks. And I also feel like all of us have either like attention issues and we're not big readers, even though I have read a lot in my life. My son and my wife, it's like, we get this through movies. You know, we get this through like the ideas and the concepts and stuff. And it's just easier sometimes for us to understand this stuff and to and to have these conversations because I do think they're so important. That's so amazing. That's so beautiful. You are an incredible mother. Uh, <laughs> all I got from my mom was like, I'm rewatching Fran Drescher's The Nanny. Uh, that's <laughs> I'm just going to be watching that all the time that's all you're getting from me so i was like oh i guess <laughs> not yeah. incredible frank i learned i learned a, i learned a lot about childcare, <laughs> but no that's that's amazing i'm curious so like i mean i hit the last time i had seen this movie was probably college i remember it was like college someone was like oh god we gotta watch brazil it's this super cult classic and yeah. i remember seeing it at the time and being like whoa yeah like bureaucracy paperwork that is annoying um sure but i it didn't resonate with me in a way where I really took away some of the bigger lessons and revisiting it now I'm like wow this is so prescient and I mean the thing that really stuck out to me more so than like I mean this is like an anti-capitalist podcast but this is really a movie about state power you know like what happens when power when organization is consolidated in basically in one state entity I mean that's pretty terrifying I think that's something we can all relate to today um and the bureaucracy of it, of course, I, I also I, I find a lot of bureaucracy today in like sort of like our corporate structures, you know, like there's the DMVs of the world. But there's also like you ever tried to get a like a fucking refund from an airline or, you know, like any any of that shit, like the, the merger in our real world today. We have sort of like the state power and then we also have like this corporate power. And this movie does such a good job of, I think, just kind of like merging the two, which I which was really profound in rewatching it, I thought. I uh, it was funny because as I'm aging, it's funny. I watch movies now and I identify sometimes now more with the villains in the movie. <laughs> like I was watching it about the mom and, you know, she really wanted, uh, you know, her son, the Jonathan Price character to like get a promotion. You know what I mean? And like she's trying to get him married and she's trying to get him a promotion. Why? Because she wants him to be taken care of financially. She is worried about him. She's mm -hmm. worried about his ability to earn. She is worried about his ability to be taken care of in this world. And it was like, as a young person, you're just watching this and you're like, go away, bitch. You know what I mean? As you age, you're totally like, but She's kind of got a point, you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to just... And then it was funny because at the very end of the movie, you know, and I, I, of course, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry if I'm going to be spoiling this movie. It's 40 years old. Please go see it. But at the very, very end... Spoil <laughs> exactly. yeah. At the very end of the movie, you know, he's he has died. And in his last moments, or or he's about to die or whatever, in his last moments, what he's thinking about and his place of heaven was to be essentially off the grid with the love of his life in a in a cabin mm -hmm. in the woods with with no with goats with no nothing none of this like oppressive 
you know, did you fill this out? Did you go here? Did you do that? Did you show up to this? Did you, you know, and that was the true piece of what he wanted. And, and he was so resistant the whole time. Like, oh, I don't want this promotion. I don't. So it's almost like he was resisting the, the, the stream of the capitalism in the movie, which is like, you got to get ahead and you got to work and your boss is an idiot and you da, 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 and all of this stuff. And so it was almost like naturally inside of him to mm. resist it. And that was his final wish in the end of the movie. Yeah. So did you find it hopeful? I don't know if I, fi if I find this movie hopeful. I think I do find this movie like kind of like a and life keeps going on type of movie. Like even though he had his experience, he wasn't able to change anything. He wasn't able to get free from it. He didn't get the girl. I mean, he got the girl in his mind, but in the end, not in real life. You know what I mean? In real life, he was absolutely... Uh, you know, an ant under a magnifying glass, you know, burnt to a crisp by this yeah. whole whirlwind of a, this society. And that is sad. That's the sad part of this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean he, he's full on catatonic by the end. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't see him. I mean, they're saying like he's gone, you know, at the end of the movie. I think that was how they addressed him. And he was just kind of staring off. And it was like, I can't imagine that he either lived beyond that point or had any sort of quality of life after that because they uh, tortured him and whatever it is that they needed to get out of him. But like, there's that segment at the end of the movie where you're like, where is this going? But it's all, it, you realize it's all happening in his mind. It was just a, a, yeah. def a, a, a filmmaker deflection. You know what I mean? I also felt like to me, the end was some of the most beautiful, important, I mean, the whole thing is gorgeous, but the end is it, without that ending, it wouldn't have had, I mean, the impact that I thought it had politically. Like for me, the most compelling perspective, I think, after watching was like the the importance of the role of imagination and the artist. This film was so much about, to me, the grotesqueness of fantasy and the addiction of fantasy versus reality. And, you know, that we start in this sort of gigantic fantasy that we all have that dream of like going through the clouds, but even inside of that fantasy, it's all, you know, all of that is still mimicked and his fantasy keeps mimicking the reality that there's no escape, that it's not actually a real escape. And it starts to become, at least my experience of the film was like annoying and detrimental and like a prison in itself, the way drugs can be, the way, you know, where you're like, stop, mm -hmm. stop taking that fantasy drug, Sam, like free yourself. And it got me at the end because there was that moment where I was like, maybe the fantasy worked. Maybe he really did like escape. And then they cut back to the real world. And to me, that was like, oh, I just think it's such an important message for right now in a world where the illusion of consumerism and fantasy in a world where like 44% of American adults believe that they can become billionaires. Yes. Like in spite of the fact that we are in the biggest wealth gap, like it's such cognitive dissonance, but I think that's what this film gets to is like, we are grasping and every moment, right? And all those images where there's the bombs and the terrorism in the Chinese restaurant, they're pulling the curtain over everything. To me, I was like, oh, God, if not fantasy, what is the answer? And I felt like at the end, it was just like imagination. 
which this film has endless amounts of, but I just left feeling like triumphant as an artist. So yeah, that was my big, big takeaway. But it was that last moment that was like, oh, that's it. You got to imagine the world that you want to create. Like there's no, like that world doesn't get made unless someone breaks the paradigm and is like, oh, there could be something completely different here that we're not even, we're not even considering. And it's not even on in our purview. I also feel like they needed the fantasy to live because the real world was so disgusting, like just disgusting. Like there's, yeah, I mean the bombs at dinner and the fucking like the, 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 um, the, the the surgery's gone wrong and the fucking like like my complication is that a complication and then she just slides out of the coffin and like like just Ugh. because the real world is so fucked up and terrible and he needed that he needed it to get by and to get through and to make that his goal and how much he was applying it to you know the 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 beautiful woman in it and i mean it's such such a challenge. What's, what's so cool is she doesn't seem to have that, right? Like she, there are characters that seem to be like either I'm not in the class that can afford to have that. Like I think Gilliam does a great job of showing that in contrast and he starts to slip away from it. But I think we have that clip where he's talking to Jill and because like what's so great is she starts to like break and I love just the choice of being like his fantasy girl with the hair and then this and she's like everything but yeah and she says this to him. Doesn't it bother you the sort of things you do with information retrieval? What? I suppose you'd rather have terrorists. You'd rather have. How many terrorists have you met, Sam? Actual terrorists. Actual terrorists? Yeah. Well, it's only my first day. (laughs) (laughs) She gets it. It is funny. (laughs) And he's, you know, all in that fantasy and she's just there to be like, what? And she was from the beginning, you know, she was like, are you okay? Like she's watching through the hole in the floor. And she was like, wait a second. These things don't add up. They're like, oh, they came to get Tuttle. And she was like, his name isn't Tuttle, it's Buttle. And then she actually got the fucking, like the wherewithal together to like bring this paperwork to information retrieval. And she was like, but they went over here and you can see that she's like taking the time while his character is kind of, and I feel like he's breaking away from it, but his character in reference to the other characters where they're just keep moving forward. They just are like, you got to do your job. And like, hey, I'm killing people for a living, but my three kids and the thing and the whatever. And it's like, he's torn, I feel like between these two worlds where she's totally like, no, I see what's happening right now and I can make a difference. And then in reference to his friend, Jack, who in the end, you know, essentially kills him, you know, or or whatever he does to him in the end. But it's like his whole thing is like, you've got to keep moving forward. You've got to keep doing this. Like, how could you not want more or better for your life? And Mm -hmm. he's fighting it the whole time. I don't want the promotion. I don't But mother. Listen to me. Like, just I, I want something else. I want something different, but doesn't exactly know what that is. And I also feel like the the system is too big, too big for him to to break out of it. And the thing about the terrorism that I think is so fascinating in this film, too, and also just feels just it's so present tense. None of it's sci-fi, which is so scary. But 100%. None of it's sci-fi. Um, but I love that even just these acts of terrorism, 
uh, I think I was reading in an interview with uh, the designer who mentioned like, it's really just like, there's actually no terrorism. It's just things falling apart in this world, like this weird world where they have Ooh. all the bureaucracy and all these like ducks yeah. that <laughs> just wild these ducks. And you're just like, oh, it's just things not working and blowing up and then blaming terrorism because that's how you control through fear. You know, right. Then we go into George Bush Sr. Uh, Terry Gilliam decides that or actually in 2006, after George W., he finally gives up his American citizenship. Oh, whoa. Wow. Did not know that. I, I love the idea that the, the terrorism is just a device to keep us divided. You know what I mean? Which is what they do now. You know what I mean? Like it's it, it's just a thing to keep us preoccupied and not notice what's happening um, in the bigger picture. And yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like building on broken things, build, building more broken, broken, broken. It's all just kind of falling apart. But everybody is like still Christmas shopping and still doing like life goes on. You know what I mean? Consumers for Christ. It's my favorite sign of the movie. Consumers for Christ was like, I think one of the one of my favorite. There's so many like little touches in the production design, uh, just like these little little signs and verbiage like in the first scene in the first office where like the the first mistake with the bug happens there's a poster on the back and they barely it's like almost out of focus you can hardly read it but it says loose talk is news talk all of the details all the way through this is just like you are you are under surveillance anything you say can be used against you we have complete consolidated power i mean like the ministry of information which is obviously supposed to be you know either like the cia or mi6 in the uk they did such a good job of blowing out what our world already is and taking it to like the most ridiculous degree possible. Yeah. Like there are bombs going off, but people are still Christmas shopping. But it's like that, like you you see that and it's it seems ridiculous, but it's only, it's not that far off from like, there's a school shooting in this country every other day. And then the next day we all go back to work and it's like, uh, you know, business as usual. It nailed some of the stuff that we have going on in our current society and just like blew it out to its most extreme possibility. It's funny that you brought up the, um, the Easter eggs essentially like throughout this movie that you could watch it a thousand times and be like, Oh, I never noticed that before, but I never noticed before that. Like, I think when they go into the first, I don't even know if it's information retrieval or whatever, but there's this huge statue and they, they, they kind of zoom down to the base of the statue and it's like hard work. And instead of it saying, we'll set you free, it says, we'll make you free. And there was a part of me that was like, why the slight difference and not set you free, but make you free. And I felt like it's almost like the make you free. And if you think about the word free and not just the word free of like a bird flying feels free, but like you do not have a, a value. You are free. You are expendable. Mm. We can use you and throw you away. You mean nothing to us because you. there's no skin in the game with you as a human. It'll make you free. And it was like, I just feel like your brain, depending on like, like a Warshak test, like no, no matter where you can go with this, you can kind of look at it and get something from it. Mm. And what you were just saying uh, too about that, like, and life kind of goes on. I've been seeing like, no one kind of said this kind of like conversation that like no one said that we would have to work through the apocalypse, which we are, you know what I mean? Like we're working yeah. through this. Right. And I was thinking about that movie, which I've never seen, but like it's a world war Z or something where 
there's that famous scene where they're like climbing over people to get over a wall. It's a very famous, like, I don't even know what the rest of the movie. Yeah. 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 I don't even know what the rest of the movie is, but like that visual. And I'm like, that's what I felt like we were in kind of like in the, in like the OG pandemic times, right? Everyone's just like climbing, but I was still working through the whole, my wife did not stay home. She was, uh, she worked in a restaurant and she worked 100% through the pandemic. Turns out that every, no one could cook and, you know, chefs and line cooks turned out to be the heroes. Uh, brunch turned out to be the linchpin of the fucking pandemic and no one could fucking <laughs> stay home. And I was thinking to myself like, wow, like everyone's climbing to get over the wall, like in this visual and I'm off to the side, like, well, t let's talk about your YouTube channel, you know, cause I also help people with their social media. So I'm just totally like, it, yes, like I didn't realize that we would have to be clocking in and clocking out, that we wouldn't have this ability to like not work. And it's maybe a denial that like, hey, don't look over there. Like you got to show up to work and do your part and whatever. But like, how are we going to eat or live? There's no systems to support us while the world ends. That's such a good point about like the way that everyone feels uh, dispensable in this world. I mean, everyone feels dispensable in our world, but the way that he shoots bodies in this movie, the way he mm -hmm. makes, he makes bodies part of the machine. There are yeah. multiple scenes where he like groups people together. They're walking together. They're contorting together. Uh, you know, like the first scene when you get to, you know, Sam's first office, just like all just like, rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of just like all of these people all dressed the same when you get to like like the big terrorist explosion near the end it's just like all of these writhing bodies and they just like immediately you know the cops come in and just start sweeping everyone aside it's there's almost like a body horror element to this like not not like Cronenberg body horror, I guess a Gilliam body horror, where it's like, I feel all these people are part of this machine and that they are completely dispensable. They're like a cog and they could get tossed aside at any point. Yeah. But then also the desire, I mean, as you're watching it, especially with the, the beauty stuff, which that is actual body just horror. Like, I mean, <laughs> everything today, I mean, it's just moved more in that direction. But this idea that you intentionally, I think what you're saying is so spot on because in order to control people, you have to make them believe that their bodies are not worthless because otherwise are, are worthless because mm -hmm. otherwise you would demand health care. But if your bodies are not your own and it's just it's more important to have it work for whatever it is a work machine, then you don't need health care and you'll do what the state demands and whatever that idea there is that you wouldn't have to think about yourself. And yet the flip side is that we can recognize like how much power there are in those bodies coming together for a revolt and revolution. And if there was a little imagination to see it the other way, but also Sam is so focused on just himself. And I think that's, what's kind of nice to watch that breakdown of like the real world entering his atmosphere. I love the, um, the plastic surgery element of this because it is, clearly only available for these wealthy bodies right and then mm -hmm. we have you know the the harold buttle body which is like oh we made a mistake sorry he is deleted sorry here's a check you know what i mean like the difference between how these two kinds of bodies are treated and when she's sitting there and he's stretching her face and he's putting the saran wrap on there and then he turns you know he turns her around to face sam and he's like Oh, it's working like it's just it's so like the comic <laughs> the comedy relief in this movie too is just so fantastic and also too like i was thinking about in terms of like 
uh, Frank, what you were talking about in his first office where it was like, everyone's working. And the boss who doesn't know how to work his machine needs help. Like it's clearly like it's the way it always is. It's the way it's always going to be, which is that they need these worker people to make it happen. And they usually and the bosses and the higher ups usually like in a in an undercover boss situation don't know shit, don't know how to fucking work the machines, don't know how to fucking get it from here to there. These people are so, <laughs> they actually are so important to them. They are, because he didn't even know how to work his machine. He had to have Sam come in. He's like, I, you know, I don't know how to do it and whatever. And he's well, doing, working all of his magic. And I'm like, oh my God, everyone's had that boss. We were like, really? That's the <laughs> other thing about like, you know, bureaucracy or at least if it's not the state corporations that just have so many people working there it's like the more you increase the amount of people and the amount of paperwork you're gonna create more opportunities for mistakes human error is the one thing we can always count on for the rest of you know the rest of time it, it really points out how when these systems grow to these sizes like there are going to be these problems that slip through and when these systems have this much power these problems end up you know killing Harold Buttle. And we did I didn't even mention that's so like that's the first scene with the the kidnapping of Harold Buttle. That yeah. is such a jarring entry into this movie of these state troopers coming in, bagging him in front of his family, uh taking him off, giving his wife the receipt. Well, I mean that opening sequence cuz I watched it and watching it with such a kind of a critical eye, it was so perfectly to set up this world where it was just totally like they drill the hole, they they cut this hole in the floor, they they go in and get him, and then they go to fill the hole. And she was like, This is a mistake. And they're like, Well, we don't make mistakes, but like you watch them make a mistake. You know what I mean? It's yeah. all fucking mistakes. It's all mistakes. But they're like, well, we don't fucking make mistakes. And then it's like, we have to do it perfectly. Or like the whole thing about Sam's like heating and cooling in his house, that little B plot where the Robert De Niro character comes in and goes to fix it. And then you've got Bob Hoskins and whoever his sidekick guy is. And it's like, well, did you fill out these forms? And like that whole B plot around it. I mean, it's like, I I truly, this is how I feel about the world pretty much every day. I have no confidence that anyone knows what they're doing. Zero confidence <laughs> that any customer service person has any ability to help me in any way, shape, or form. And it's only been made worse by the pandemic and TikTok by watching mm -hmm. nurses and doctors in their cars, on their phone, talking about anti-vax, whatever bullshit. I mean, nurses, I will never trust another person that's going to be in charge of me ever again, ever again. So much of the film is about distrust, right? Like how these systems input distrust. But I do think that it's not I don't think it's like a system that's just not working because it's the system. Like, I think from the beginning of the movie, this sets up that this whole system is working the way it's supposed to be. And it's really subtle, which is why it's also such a brilliant film. But you do have to watch it multiple times and should watch it multiple times. I think that's Terry Gilliam has a whole thing about that's how movies are meant to be watched. Mm. But it's set up. There's like that background while the guy is making the bottle mistake because he's trying to catch this fly on the TV. You hear the deputy minister, Eugene. Hultman. And he's talking about the setup of this world, right? And he's saying, you know, in order to pay for it, we actually then are going to tax you for your mistakes. So it's not like there is a financial gain here for like the whole buttle tuttle confusion. So it seems like there is also on top of it benefit for there's someone's getting rich off of 
these mistakes, you know? So it's not even just like meaningless accidental shit. It's like someone's financially gaining. Otherwise they would have incentive to fix it. But like the incentive to keep the insanity going is capitalism. Yay. And I think it's too big to change at this point. It, it, it It's like, because I was the conversation that I had last night with my wife around it, because my wife, it's interesting because I'm Gen X and I'm I'm older and I and my brain, in all honesty, sometimes can't grasp sometimes the stuff that she's talking about because I am much more jaded and much more like bitter. I mean, for liter- lack of words, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. like I'm like, no, because I remember when the pandemic first hit. I was like, we need to go to the grocery store and we need to get our fucking shit. And she was like, no, no, we don't need to panic. There's enough. I was like, bitch, there's not enough. Like, I, what are you talking about? Like, we need to help our fucking family. And she was just totally like, yes, but that's going to make it worse. And I'm like, but who is going to take care of us, us, our family? You know what I mean? We had this, you know, she's younger than me. Lord love her. She is the most generous. She rides her bike for AIDS life cycle. She's raised tens of thousands of dollars. She rides her bike from LA to, I mean, from San Francisco to LA to raise money for people without, you know, the ability to get, you know, AIDS care and STD stuff. And I mean, she's literally saving lives. And I'm like, what am I going to be on TV? You know, like, I'm such a fucking bitter witch. You know what I mean? (laughs) But like, her heart is still very like, I can make a difference and I will make a difference. And she wants to make a difference. She even like people, the way she raises money sometimes is this tattoo roulette where people like bid on the highest and she ends up getting the tattoo. Like it's my wife is insane and she's so generous. And I'm like, no, no, look out for us, us, our family. Like we need to make sure that we're protected, which I think both are correct. But I have a tendency to kind of to skew a little bit farther. Why? Because I've been around a little bit longer and I have not always been fucking taken care of. I fucking can tell you that not always fucking taken care of. I've, I've been, I've flown first class and I've been on fucking food stamps and both are incredibly challenging in their own fucking ways. But I can fucking tell you that by filling out fucking paperwork and trying to get my family taken care of at a time when it was like, I was decimated. It was the most challenging thing I've ever done. And I truly felt like no one cared. I mean, that's the most challenging part of living today, especially in the fucking United States is just like, we all know, we all know that no one is there to help us. Like you fuck up, you're on your ass. They're like, unless you got family, unless you got money stashed away, you got no healthcare, you got no affordable housing, you've got no retirement, you got, we're giving you fucking nothing in this country. Yes. And it, sucks and it weighs on people's minds i mean like there's like a whole there's like a whole discourse happening online right now about the mental health industry and and mental illness and like obviously their mental illness is real people suffer from like you know chemical issues that you know need therapy and medication but also there's like a, a large swath of people online now being like hey i think maybe a lot of these you know, mental health issue, like anxiety, depression is just from the fact that we live in a society that we know does not look out for us, that we are on our own. And if mm-hmm. anything, this society is making it harder for us to survive every single day and letting us all know, hey, if you fuck this up, you're, you're fucking you're on the street. You got nothing. And not only that, then we'll normalize it to the point mm-hmm. of making it so that it can sell us those so that there's a whole industry based on it. So that the pharmaceutical industries can get filthy rich. But the normalization is so crucial and I think so important to the discussion of this film, because I think that's part of what this is doing is it like penetrating through. That's what satire, I think, does so tremendously well that other 
genres don't always get to do, where it can just penetrate that normalization. Yes. And it can make it bigger and bigger than it is. It's so funny because when we were talking about it, I was trying to figure it out because I kept on like defaulting to like the way that it already is. And I was like, well, wouldn't it just end up the way that it already is anyway? Wouldn't we just default back to this thing? And she was just totally like, no. And then I was like, but how could we change it? It's all so steeped. It's so big. And she was like, we burn it to the ground. And I was like, but like, I was like, now? I was like, we have things to do. I'm like, I just I just booked a guest spot. I know. I'm like, I'm 51 years old. Like, is that going to take 10 years? I, I, we have things we, we have plenty. Like, when do we burn it to the ground? I was like, I don't. And that means while burning it to the ground, that means we're free falling, which means people will die. Those systems aren't in place yet. Yeah. How do we make this thing that's fucked up not exist and get the new thing in? It's it's like I just know that like I can only kind of like assimilate it to like I'm sober uh, 28 years. And it's like so in hitting a bottom, everything falls apart and stops working. You literally cannot make things work. You you literally like the drugs and the alcohol just stop working. And then so you've got to start doing the new thing one at a time. But there is a period where you don't know what to do because you don't know what works and what doesn't work for you, right? But Mm -hmm. we're talking about a period where if we tear this all, my wife is like, well, let's burn it all to the ground. Of course. I mean, she's 31 years old. She's got plenty of time. She's got energy. I'm like, that's adorable. You know what I mean? But I'm like, but what do we do in that time where we don't know what the new thing is? Who, who's going to take care of our most vulnerable during that time? Like I want the new thing, but I don't know how we're going to get there. And that's what scares me. Cause I'm like, can this not happen on my watch? Can this not happen while I'm here? Yeah. But then I'm worried about my 18 year old son. I'm worried about his experience on this planet. I'm worried about her after I go or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just didn't mean to get so dark. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it is dark. And I think articulating that is so crucial. And it's something that we actually are being, I mean, it's sort of the path towards like, how can we articulate and talk about and explore that darkness and the fact that there is that void that needs to be filled again by imagination, not by fantasy. But that's also why it's like, oh, let me swoop in with that fantasy that actually, because the fantasy is that it's not burning. Like it's fucking burning. So it's not a matter of like, it's more a matter of like, do we want to take agency in this burning down and have some space for imagination and rebuild? Or do we want to just like Sam sort of live in this fantasy? And I, I, I truly, the human part of me is like, that is the choice. Let me just TikTok away and yeah. just numb away yes. because it is 100%. But then we come together and get to have these conversations. And I just really, again, believe that's why the role of the artist to like, and that's why, why this to keep penetrating that, because I don't think that's what we really want. It just does sound better. No. And, and, and I think it boils down to the choice, like, like pretty much everything in life, it, you know, when it, when it is burning down, when the revolution comes is like, are you going to be the person who's just only looking out for your own ass? Or are you going to be the person who is taking care of your community and the people around you? Like, that's it. You're right, Melanie, like new systems can't be born. Old systems can't die without suffering, without, you know, people getting hurt, without people dying. But we already have, you know, like <laughs> we're watching shit burn, but there are so many amazing people who are doing such amazing work for free, just taking care of their community, you know, mutual aid groups, people that like run uh, food banks, like, 
people yeah. donating huge amounts of their time yeah. just to take care of people who don't have others to take care of them. So like, I, I think that's, that's all we can hope for is that there's going to be enough of those people and those. And I think that is people's natural instinct. I think people, I think our biology our evolution makes us want, like we are a communal species. We want to take care of people. So I think when push comes to shove, people will realize that like, that is, that's the only choice that you you should be making. I know, but what's so challenging about that is we did watch it in the past three years. And the truth of the matter is more people, I was shocked at how many people were not invested in the collective good. We're, we're absolutely appalled by the collective good. People who know me and love me or you know who vote against my my own family, who vote against my uh, you know, my ability to be married to my wife. I'm like, I, it's funny because I was actually just cleaning my office and um, uh, our, our wedding announcements, I might actually, oh wait, I have to show you guys because this is actually kind of funny. So this, this is our wedding announcement and it's a lineup and it was because it wasn't legal. <laughs> it was not legal for us to get married when we got engaged. This is, this is not this is not old. This is 10 years old, right? For the listener, this is a photo of of Melanie and her wife. It, do we, it, they're mugshots. They're side-by-side light-up mugshots, yeah. And so essentially, and it says crime enga- engaged, right? So, and then on the back, it's like the perfect crime. They stole each other's hearts. That's because it was not, it was not legal for us to get married. And then, so, and that's not like ancient history. That's right. And then we literally, I mean, just until, you know, a few months ago when they they signed... We were literally waiting to find out whether or not our marriage would either be reversed or it would that or they would let us remain married because they've done this in California before where they let everybody get married and then they reversed it. And then there was so there was literally like a six week period where people could get married and then they reversed it and then went back to it. And then so, you know, Aaron and I had to get a domestic partnership. We, we've been married on so many different weird levels to protect our marriage. You know what I mean? And we've been together 11 years. You know, we're not like, you know, oh, we've been together six months, whatever. When I was, when, and also too, in reference to what you were saying, Frank, about like, they say that like, when you think about like what happened in like Nazi Germany, and it's like, a lot of people think that they would be so heroic. And it's like, actually, how you acted the most recently through the past three years is how you would have acted in that situation. Am I just going to be shut up and fucking close the doors and like whatever? Or are you going to be willing to hide people in your fucking yeah. attic? Most people wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I know we think that we would be so heroic, but actually they wouldn't. And I, it's so funny because um, my stepmom was like, uh, what do you guys want for your wedding anniversary? And I said, we want a lawyer to fucking help us with our estate planning, because if our marriage gets reversed, we need to protect ourselves as a family. And I have, you know, I have a child, we have businesses, we have all kinds of stuff. And I was like, or silk pajamas, like I kind of joked about it. And she was like, silk pajamas it is. Like she just ignored the fact. And, And it's funny because people would like to think that they would be so courageous and that they would help. And I'm like, no, no, this is happening to me. I worry at night that my my life and my marriage is going to be dissolved. And I'm lucky that I'm a, I'm a, a, a gay woman who lives in California. I worry about my brothers and sisters who live other places in America, that they are being murdered in clubs and they are still being, you know, uh, treated in this horrible way. It's a real thing that's happening in, in real time. And so 
I don't even know how we got here, but like, yeah. I think this conversation is the natural evolution from where Brazil, because Brazil has so many ideas packed into it. It is an assault on the senses in the best way possible. It's an assault on your mind in the best way possible. So like, I'm not surprised that this is where the conversation has has brought us because it's it just, it stirs up all of this shit in all of us. Um, and it's, it's real and we're all de- dealing with it right now. Yeah. And I think also too, like how much that we learned about ourselves because not only, you know, did we have to deal with this like collective, you know, enemy, which was COVID, but then we, then the roots went really, really deep with the social justice stuff that happened at the same exact time, which I was just totally like, as soon as we were depleted, we realized how fucking sick we really were. Right. And then it was like, oh my God. And the, you know, the amount of conversations that we were having in our own home, because I'm I'm raising a a cisgendered white male on this planet and I'm trying to like do everything I possibly can to like, and I also didn't want to be like, this is how we think, this is how you're going to think. Like I wanted him to be like, hey, this is Mm -hmm. why people think this way and this is why people think this way. And Mm -hmm. he was old enough at that time to make decisions as to whether or not he would get vaccinated because once once children are past like 12 and 13, I was no longer able to access my son's medical records because he's considered like an independent at that point because because they become sexually active and stuff like that. So if he wanted to go get vaccinated, he doesn't need my permission to do that. And so it was like we had to have these incredibly deep conversations and I had to educate him and be like, hey, this is how we think. But like, what do you think and what do you want to do? And he was like, well, can I see my friends? And I was like, yeah, if you get vaccinated. And he was like, well, great, we're going to go get fucking vaccinated. You know what I mean? It was like fucking simple. But yes, and also too, so much about the haves and haves not, have nots, which I feel like in this movie is also so prevalent because we do see how his mother is living, fur coats, diamonds, unlimited Mm -hmm. amount of beautiful things that she can do. She can be young and attractive and live in a dream. And then it was like, He's pulling up to the place where Buttle was taken and he's talking with this little girl who's dirty and she's like, oh, I'm waiting for my dad. And he literally puts it all together that that's Buttle's daughter. And that that wife is just like, what have you done with his body? Where is he? Like, why? I, he was a good man. Like, how could you have done this to me? But it, no one cares because it's like they don't have the money to be able to fight that. And it just you're you're speaking. I'm just thinking back and you were talking about the dirt. And yes, and the contrast of these worlds. And just, I don't know, I just keep thinking about this quote that Terry said on the film. I have a theory about Brazil in that it was a very difficult film for a pessimist to watch, but it was okay for an optimist to watch it. For a pessimist, it just confirms his worst fears. An optimist could somehow find a grain of hope in the ending. Cynicism bothers me because cynicism is, in a way, an admission of defeat, whereas skepticism is a fairly healthy And also it implies that there's a possibility of change. And just that ending keeps coming back to me. And you made this point, Melanie, about the nature and that, you know, there's a part where they're driving the highway and you do see the nature, except it's it's covered by billboards on each side. And then at the end, in this moment, it's like the billboards are not there and there's a freedom. And I just we were talking about that void that exists when we're just in this paralyzed, like, but what happens, you know, after the rock bottom. And I actually, I I had this thought about, you know, there's these indigenous cultures and this indigenous wisdom, particularly around our relationship to earth and to nature 
and to our planet that are there. And I just, I just feel like there's something about that moment about nature and that connection and that world cat, like that is the, I was like, why did this leave me with that grain of hope? And there is that hope that like, we don't actually alone have to have all the answers and that perhaps, especially in our like white colonialism, um, imperialist state can like, actually, maybe it'll, maybe, maybe the answer will be there if we hit that rock bottom and it, disintegrates all that shit that we think we know because there was a knowledge that's deeper that is there to catch us if we let it I 100% hear you and I think that I think that I am which is why I have like a negative I don't even know if it's negative but like pain about the ending because there is uh you know a part of me that feels like that it didn't work out and I do feel a pain around it I've also, you know, experienced some incredibly hard stuff in my life. And I don't feel like, I guess I would have to be honest and say, I don't feel any comfort in nature because I feel like nature doesn't care about us. A rock can fucking fall on your head. And that rock doesn't give a fuck that you're in the middle of writing your book. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like nature is just totally like, bitch, we're going to happen with or without you. And there is a part of me that actually feels comfort in cities and in structure and in things because I'm like, oh, I know where to go and I know where to do. And there's others around. And the structure of life actually gives me like a scaffolding to like know where to go and to know what to do. And I, it's funny because I, you know, I, I live in California, which is, um, uh, much to my chagrin, you know, I'm such a New Yorker, but like, I, I, you know, everybody's like, let's go on a hike. And I'm like, I, it, it's terrifying to me. I do not want to be on the side of a mountain. I do not want to fucking, have, you know, twist my ankle on some fucking, you know, some like rocks and then a fucking, you know, helicopter has like, that's where my brain goes. Like, I don't feel comfortable in nature. And even though I do feel like in, I do understand the metaphorical, visual though of that nature moment that they had in the end because they were free and they were together and no one was going to bother them and they had each other and they had their little animals and they were essentially like out of because they represented the city as such like a rat race you know what I mean like with the music and the people and the hustle and bustle and they could just be at peace and be together and yes I understand that do you know what I mean I understand the visuals behind that and I understand that as a um, as a plot device, the visuals of that. But yeah. like in real life, I'm like, I don't want to be in a tent. I do not want to be in a river. I don't want to be, I don't want to be anywhere that isn't, that there isn't a cold iced tea uh, and something beautiful to look at and some good music and a, uh, and some bread and butter. Like I'm just. <laughs> wow. We really, we really came full circle on this. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, burn it all down revolution nature, but actually I just want to like sit on a couch and TV. So, I mean. That's all what I know. My wife wants to burn it all to the ground and I'm like, but do we have to do this now? Like, I'm just like, oh, like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Like, I'm like, who's got time to burn it down like i don't <laughs> all right melanie well this is the point in the episode where we hand out the awards for this movie we got three awards that we do um first one is called a point with a view this goes to the character in the movie with the best politics so who would you say has the best politics in this movie it's funny that you ask that and you know there is also a part of me where i had to have these conversations with my wife because i I'm not somebody that ever thought like this in my life, like as 
I don't feel like I'm like the the sharpest tool in the shed. I feel like I have like really good street smarts, but like as far as like history and education, I don't think I got that as like the Gen Xer that I was. And so I would have to say that I think it's Robert De Niro's character because he kind of swoops in and, you know, he helps Sam and he's like, you know what? It's cool. You help me. I help you. And I'm just here to fucking like make it fucking work for you. And that's that. You know what I mean? So I feel like, in my opinion, it would probably be the Robert De Niro character. Yeah. And yet it could be Jill as well, because Jill was actively also trying to to save just one insignificant man and his family and how wonderful that is. So I feel like maybe the two of those characters would maybe be the best out of those. Yeah. I'm with you. I say Jill. Yeah. And I, and I vote for De Niro. He's like the revolutionary in this movie, which is amazing because he's like, he's a heating repair man, which is a brilliant choice. But he's doing it in his corner of the world, kind of like what you were saying, Frank, where it's like, we can only help the people in our corner of the world. I don't feel like I'm going to change racism and sexism and misogyny and fucking classism and all that stuff. But in my own little world, I can make sure that like, hey, I'm booking shows that have equal representation on them. And I'm doing things in my own little world that I can make better choices and decisions so that I'm not just kind of keeping with the status quo and that's just the way that it is and fuck off and sorry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our next award is um, Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. I'm going with uh, Michael uh, Michael Palin's character, Jack. Uh, Jack Lime, I think is the character's name. Yeah, uh, Jack Lime. Be- because he murders his friends. He's a total <laughs> agent of the state. He buys into all of the propaganda. He's a real piece of shit and murders his friend at the end. Fuck that guy. Although <laughs> I thought Michael Palin looked very good in this movie. And he's usually like the, the dorky weird guy in movies. I was like, is Michael Palin hot right now? But that <laughs> has nothing to do with his problems. Yeah, Michael Palin was hot. I would have to agree. Um, and he's just kind of like the cheerio. We got to keep going, <laughs> keep moving forward. And like the wife and the kids. And he kept on cutting off his wife every time she kept on trying to talk. And he was like, well, she feels like this. You know what I mean? And the the, the child that was there with him while he's like washing his hands after murdering somebody like doesn't give a fuck, like just kind of like maybe the most boomer out of all of them that's just totally like it worked for me why wouldn't it work for you would you like a christmas present you know what i mean like just yep. just flourishing under under these circumstances he's killing it wife kids great job oh, yeah. mm-hmm. he, he just is doing it secretary the whole thing christmas presents he's killing it absolutely why would he change it's working for him but then the way that he gets killed is just so good with the mask on you know doing that i mean talk about illusion and then just and just gets shot right there while he's torturing his friend good riddance i think for me it's the deputy minister eugene helpman even though he doesn't really show show face think he's the the real bat the real baddie right because he's like the top banana that's telling everybody absolutely and our final award is a star is scorned this goes to the supporting character in the movie that this movie should actually be about for me it was the the telegram singing girl love love her (laughs) so good and then he tries to sing it back to him he's like uh mother I and she was like oh no no you don't have to sing it to me and he was like oh my god how fucking funny yes oh my god and what a great little costume I was totally like how do I be a singing telegram person in my next uh Halloween situation 
Um, I mean, now that you said that, I mean, I, I truly love the performance of the mom. I just, and that's because I'm, I'm just a, a mom and I just understand her a little bit more now, but like even looking at her dresses and I'm such a glamour puss and I love her whole performance. And I would love to see a spinoff about her, ver like how she got there, her fucking villain story. You know what I mean? Of like how Ooh, she, yeah. <laughs> I would watch the the Bob Hoskins and his sidekick movie, like the two the two the two humps who work for central services fixing heating systems. Like I want to see them get radicalized and then like destroy central services and all of the like all of the shitty infrastructure from the inside. Yes, like a buddy movie, like a yeah. really good buddy movie. You know what I mean? Or Robert De Niro's character, like you know his like a. Uh, prequel what are those called like where it's the, the the story like how he got there you know what the I mean? origin like, story yeah. yeah the origin story of like his whole thing about you know because he does just kind of swoop in and then he's just in the movie so little but makes such an incredible impact you know i thought he was so hot in this movie <laughs> with the cigar bobby could it. get it bobby could get it he's just i mean come on give me a break that guy although you know i'm you know he's spoken for he's spoken for it's fine well this was a great conversation and before we wrap up we love to discuss with our guests how we as artists and people strive to practice our anti-capitalist beliefs in our own lives with all its complexities and contradictions which we touched on so is there anything that you do, Melanie, in your own life or a practice that you engage in? You spoke about, you know, your practice of sharing films with your family, which is great, but that you would want to share. So I feel like what has happened in the last three years, because I I've been such a um, since the age of five, I have known what I've wanted to do. I've been incredibly driven. I have worked harder, faster, longer, like just hammering away at my dreams and my goals. I've always wanted to be rich and famous, get out of my way, da, da 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 You know what I mean? I'm just totally like, I've always been that person. And I feel like with the 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 pandemic or whatever was kind of like an etch-a-sketch that just kind of shook it all up and created this blank slate. And I think at the same time, I was reaching an age where to know that when the pandemic ended, that I wouldn't be able to keep up in the same way and that I was tired in a way. And then I was also realizing that in this, this like grind of capitalism, this grind mentality, and it's a, there's a lot in the comedy world about like, you just got to grind, you just got to grind, you got to grind, you got to grind, you got to grind. And I'm like, I don't know if that's truly the answer. So I feel like in my own way, it's to rest and to just allow myself to rest. And same thing with my wife, you know, and to to be like, it's okay, you can rest. And, and, but what's so hard is that like, we are told that if you don't work, you don't get. And the truth is, is that it's actually kind of fucking true. You know what I mean? So like, but then I'm like, I, I get very torn around it. And then also too, same thing with my kid, which is just totally like, you have to rest. You know what I mean? You have to take care of yourself. And it's kind of like the theory that like, if you don't put on your own oxygen mask first, you can't help the others around you. So in reference to that conversation we were having, where it's like, I can only help this, my little corner of the universe, my circle of friends, my friends and family. And if I'm not taking care of myself, and if I'm just grinding myself down to nothing and making work the most important thing at the end, 
It's about my relationships. And I, I've watched family members, parents especially, pray at this altar of work. And our relationships have suffered greatly because at the, in the end, um, I don't know if it actually worked in the way that they wanted to. Do you know what I mean? And our relationships took a hit because of it. So, because I was fed as a Gen Xer, like the, the dream, you know what I mean? Like I was fed it and it actually, it totally worked for me for a long time. So I think it's just for me to, um, to rest and to make sure I'm really taking care of the relationships in my life, which mm. is um, incredibly challenging because I feel almost like if I'm not achieving something that I don't have an identity, that I don't have something to talk about where I'm totally, I mean, just like this whole thing started, like you can see her thing on little, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I am brought to every stage with credits. You can hear her here. She's done this. She's done that. Mm -hmm. If I get rid of those things, what will people have to talk to me about? I don't know. I, and I feel like the, a sense of loss if I'm not working and, and giving you a more checklist. So I got a TV show and I have a thing and I'm on this and I, and I, you know, I, the, the, I talk about it, the hole in the donut. Like, I feel like I will disappear unless I have these things to accomplish. So when I, even when I'm resting, I'm like, bitch, get up, you've shit to do. But I'm like, but I don't. And do I, and do I, have I done enough? And my mantra right now is like, you've done enough. You're doing enough if you've done enough. So that's a beautiful mantra. Thank you for speaking to that. Cause workaholism is so, such a strong, I mean, talk about things to be addicted to and <laughs> that fantasy of work, which you're right. It, it, when it works, it works. But when it stops working, what do you have? The consequences are great. The consequences. Yeah. And we don't talk about, I think it's one of the last things we'll talk about in this society because capitalism depends on workaholism. Melanie, this was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining. It's so so lovely to see you. I'm so glad to hear everything's going well and that the family's doing well. Yes, we're we're hanging in there somehow. Uh, and I love seeing all of your uh, TikToks. I think they're so great and wonderful. And I watch and learn and I'm just totally, absolutely <laughs> right on. That's right. That's correct. That is correct. I love it. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. And for next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2021 Fred Hampton biopic, one of my favorite films of that year, Judas and the Black Messiah. And that'll give you a chance to watch along with us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See ya.